And so what we decided to do in these final three weeks is sort of focus on three areas in the life of any congregation that I think are absolutely essential if we're going to be an effective Christian witness in the world. Um, Brian, last week in my absence, I was preaching, of course, at Pumpkin Hill. For those of you uh, who know what that is, it's one of the chapels of ease out on the uh, branch of the East Cooper River. And uh, I was out there as a guest to preach there last week. And so Brian tackled the whole subject of Christian hospitality. The New Testament says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, because in so doing some have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality is an enormous part of the Christian witness, and we are called to be hospitable people. And hospitality, as I'm sure Brian pointed out to you last week, means more than just being polite. It really means going the extra mile. So hospitality is an essential element if we're going to be the kind of church that makes a profound difference in our community and in the world at large. Another subject that is of great concern is the whole issue of the right uses of our resources, particularly our material resources and our time, what we commonly refer to as stewardship. It may come as a shock to you to realize that Jesus actually talked more about money in the New Testament than almost any other subject. Now, you may have been raised, having been raised in the South, that you don't talk about money. Well, Jesus talked about it all the time. In fact, on one occasion, he said, Store not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where neither thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus made it very clear that it's not a case where our treasure follows our heart, it's that our hearts follow our treasure. And so Andrew next week is going to talk about the whole theology of wealth and resources. But another area that is very important to the growth and the expansion of the Christian gospel is leadership. Um, what it means to be a Christian leader. And that's what I want to tackle today. I want to talk about the whole subject of leadership in the life of the community of faith. Now I think leadership is something that is of great interest to many people today. In large measure it's uh, of great interest today because we are living, as I'm sure many of you recognize, in very interesting times. There's an old Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times, and I think we're enduring the curse. We are living in very interesting times. Uh, looking out at this audience this morning, I recognize that most of you probably grew up in the 20th century. Most of us are products of that century. We may be in the 21st century, but most of us were formed and shaped in the 20th century, with the exception of Ryan Street, who just walked in the door and lowered the median age. But most of us were raised in the 20th century, and having been raised in the 20th century, we had, for the most part, a national outlook. We thought of ourselves as citizens of the United States of America, and that's how we operated. As a matter of fact, Americans, for the greater part of the 20th century, really operated under what was known as the Monroe Doctrine. The idea that we were concerned with our own sphere of influence, and we weren't necessarily concerned with what was going on in other parts of the world. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we were so reluctant to get involved in World War I. Uh, Britain and France and Russia and Germany had been involved in that war for several years before we ever got in. We only got in for about one year of World War I. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you've seen the movie, They Shall Not Grow Old, um, somebody asked the question, well, why didn't they do anything more about the Americans? Because we weren't in it for very long, to be perfectly honest with you. 
And the same is true with World War II. You'll notice that Europe had been dealing with Hitler since 1938 and before, but we didn't get involved in that war until 1941. And if you've seen the movie The Darkest Hour, you'll recall that Franklin Roosevelt was reluctant to get us dragged into that particular conflict. So we were really national in our outlook. But that is no longer the way it is. We are no longer simply concerned, and we can no longer afford to be simply concerned with what goes on here in our own little corner of the world because we recognize that what takes place in other parts of the world inevitably affects us. And that's just the way it is. It's interesting, when uh, a few years ago, when I was in Ireland with my family and with a group that I was leading there from St. Helena's, they were taking the vote on Brexit. Uh, this was about, what, three years ago they took the vote on Brexit. And um, I was talking to a young girl. We were um, in Ireland at a hotel, and I was talking to the young girl at the front desk, and she was absolutely convinced that they would never vote for Brexit. Absolutely convinced. She was probably in her 20s. Absolutely convinced they would never vote for Brexit. And I went to bed thinking that she was probably a, a much better authority on the subject than I was. I woke up the next morning, I came down, and she handed me the newspaper, and she said, I don't believe it, but they did it. And it was very interesting to see how the fault line was in terms of voting. An older generation of people voted overwhelmingly for Brexit. A younger generation voted against it. Because the older generation saw themselves as British as citizens of the United Kingdom, whereas a younger generation of people didn't necessarily see themselves as citizens of the United Kingdom, but rather as citizens of the world. They had a more global perspective, and that is the world in which you and I are living. We no longer talk just about national politics, we talk about international politics and even geopolitics, and we recognize it's a different world from the one we grew up in. Now, we may not like that, we may be uncomfortable with it, but that is not reality as we would like it, that's reality as it is. And all you have to do is take a good hard look at the world to recognize that we are in crisis. Our world looks, let's be honest, like a powder keg that is ready to go off. Just a quick glance at the news reveals all kinds of forces and threats that are being brought against Western culture and a Western worldview. You certainly have the rise of radical Islam. Do you know what the number one name for male children is in the United Kingdom, in Great Britain? Muhammad. Not James, or John, or William, or Archie. <laughs> the number one name for children being born in the United Kingdom today is Muhammad. And there's tremendous pressure on the British government, particularly in places like Bradford and Manchester, industrialized area, to incorporate Sharia law into British common law. A previous Archbishop of Canterbury actually advocated for that. Now, anybody that knows anything about Sharia law and anything that, anybody that knows anything about British common law realizes that there is a conflict between the two, particularly when it comes to the rights of women and children. So this is a threat, and it's a threat that you and I cannot be oblivious to. We have the issue of nuclearization in North Korea. I would wager to say that until the 1950s, the vast majority of Americans wouldn't have been able to locate Korea on a map or a globe until the Korean conflict. 
And now we're dealing with this tiny little country and this dictator who has the ability to launch nuclear missiles to the American mainland. And we're having to contend with that. We're having to deal with that. And he's not easy to negotiate with. We have the ongoing crisis in the Middle East, a problem that never seems to clear up. Just this past week, Israel launched rocket attacks into Palestinian territory, and that's because they had been attacked prior to that. You have the crisis in Europe as the European Union seems to be breaking apart. And calls are coming for Theresa May, the Prime, Ministers of, Prime Minister of Britain, her resignation. We've got the potential of a huge trade war with China. It's been said that if China sneezes, the world catches the cold. They're the largest economy in the world today. And we've got this potential huge trade war. You saw stocks tumble this past week because of what the president had twittered regarding sanctions against China. And then even if you are concerned with what's going on at home, well, things aren't pretty here at home either, are they? I, I grew up in the 1970s and the 1980s, as Andrew did. Andrew said that he grew up in the 80s. Don't, don't let him fool you. But I remember when Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. Now, he used to take pot shots at the Democrats all the time, and the Democrats would take pot shots at him. But it was really interesting to know. Do you remember who was the Speaker of the House when Ronald Reagan was in the White House? Tip O'Neill. And even though those two men didn't agree on a whole lot of things, nevertheless, there was an, uh, a sense of civility. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan actually liked each other as men. They just hated each other's politics. But there was a level of civility, there was a level of statesmanship that seems to be sadly lacking in American culture today. Now this is the world in which you and I are living. It is a world in crisis. And what is happening over there in North Korea has the potential to affect us in a dramatic and potentially disastrous way. Now that's just our world, whether we like it or not. And because there is a crisis in the world, I think most people recognize that there is a crisis in terms of leadership. I think most people would agree that what we desperately need in these days are leaders, people to rise up and to speak truth and wisdom in particular into this volatile situation. How many of you would agree with that? It's one of the reasons why we see a proliferation of books about leadership. All you have to do is walk through Barnes & Noble sometime or just log on to Amazon, go to the search bar, and put in the topic books about leadership, and you will see literally hundreds and hundreds of books that have been published recently on the subject of leadership. Because the world recognized that there is a vacuum in terms of leadership. John Maxwell wrote a book quite recently called Five Levels of Leadership. But it's not just popular authors either. Archie Brown is a renowned Oxford scholar the myth of, of the strong political leader in the modern age. You have football coaches. Bill Walsh, who was the coach for the San Francisco 49ers, written a book, The Score Takes Care of Itself, My Philosophy of Leadership. You have popular historians like Doris Kearns Goodwin talking about leadership and how it's important for us to hark back to the leaders of a prior age in order to learn how we can raise up leaders in the present age. And even leaders of automobile companies, Lee Iacocca, just about three years ago, wrote a book entitled, Where Have All the Leaders Gone? 
We recognize that the world is in crisis, and we not only have a world crisis, we have a leadership crisis. When I look at the world today, when I look at what's happening in our own country, when I look at what's happening throughout the globe, I can't help but think of what Jesus said when he looked at the people of his own day, and he said this in Matthew's Gospel. He said, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Is that a description of the 21st century world? Harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus once accused the Jewish religious leaders of his day of being blind guides. He said they were blind guides leading a blind people. Do you ever feel like that's what we have in the world today? The blind leading the blind? We need leaders, and we need them in this day and age desperately. Well, my question to you this morning is, what does it take to be a leader? What does it take, really, to be the kind of leader that makes a profound difference? On February 8, 2018, Forbes magazine published a list of what they considered to be eight qualifications for effective leadership in the world. And I'm going to go through these very briefly because, as I said, I've got a lot of material to cover today. So very briefly, they said these were eight things that were absolutely essential if a person was going to be an effective leader in the 21st century world. First of all, they said you had to have sincere enthusiasm. And by that, they meant sincere enthusiasm for the product. Whatever it was that you were selling or whatever idea you were trying to convey or promote, you had to have sincere enthusiasm for that. You could not be lukewarm. You were not just doing this because it was your job. You actually believed in it. A leader has to believe in what he's leading or what he's promoting. How many of you remember that old I Love Lucy episode where she was on television and she was trying to sell this liquid vitamin? You remember that? I can't even pronounce it, but yes, that's what it was. And you remember, the whole thing was hilarious because she was supposed to say that it was good tasting, but it tasted awful. And she was not very convincing, not very persuasive. Well, Forbes magazine said, if you're going to be an effective leader, you have to be convinced in order to be convincing. You've got to have a sincere enthusiasm for your product and what you are trying to sell. Second thing they said is you've got to have integrity. Now, when we think of integrity, generally speaking, we think of honesty, uprightness. But what they meant was this, a willingness to give credit where credit is due, which of course is honesty, and also a willingness to take blame where blame is necessary. And finally, they said integrity is a willingness to put quality and safety first before all other things. So that's how they defined integrity. Third qualification for an effective leader, they said, was great communication skills. A leader has to have the ability to instruct and at times discipline, not punish, but discipline, and inspire. Fourth, they said, loyalty. A leader demands loyalty, expects loyalty, but a leader also has to give loyalty. They said that means that a leader has to provide their employees with the means necessary in order to do the work. You can't ascribe to somebody or, or give somebody, assign somebody a task to do, but not give them the resources to accomplish that. What does it do? It leads to frustration. And so they said, 
Loyalty means that you are ensuring that all of your employees are equipped with every means necessary to accomplish the task. Decisiveness. They said a leader has to realize that someone has to take the risk. Someone has to call the shots. Or as Harry Truman says, someone has to say the buck stops here. That's what a true leader does. What we would call moral courage, which is different from physical courage. They said a leader has to have managerial gifts. You've got to be a good manager of the resources at your disposal, and that includes the physical, monetary, and personal resources at your disposal. Uh, they pointed out that um, most people who coach and are successful coaches in college or in national football, for example, they said most of those people have a background in football. But they noted that sometimes those who were the most effective players did not necessarily make the most effective coaches. And those who were not particularly successful in national football or college football nevertheless made the best coaches. Why? Because they had the managerial gifts for it. And so they said that was absolutely necessary for leadership as well. They said the seventh thing that was necessary was self-confidence. You trusted your own wisdom. You, you were not dithering back and forth wondering if you'd made the wrong decision. You had self-confidence because if you are confident in yourself, you can instill confidence in others. And finally they said the last thing that was necessary that sort of bound all of these together was charisma. What the French, what they would say in French is je ne sais pas, je ne sais quoi. I don't know what it is, but that, it's, that, it's that special quality, whatever it is, some sort of elusive quality that sort of binds all of these things together. They said in order to be an effective leader, you have to have all eight of those qualities. Now, if you think about it, that's a pretty good list. It's a pretty comprehensive list. And I think most of us would probably shake our heads and say, yes, that's a, that's a realistic picture of what it takes to be a leader. But I think you have to remember that Forbes magazine is a what? It's a business magazine. <laughs> it would be really interesting to ask somebody in the military what they regard as eight qualifications for leadership. Now, you might get some overlap here. Some of these things, I think, are universally transferable. But you may find that somebody in the military realm would give a slightly different list of qualifications for leadership. And what's more, they might move these around a bit. So we recognize that in business there are certain qualifications for leadership, and in the military there are certain qualifications for leadership, and they are not always the same. There are some things, as I said, that overlap but there are other areas where they are different. Well, I want to suggest to you that when it comes to the church, that is the case. If we're going to be leaders as Christians, leaders in the body of Christ, the qualifications are going to be a little bit different than what we see for the qualifications of leadership in the military or in the business world. Some years ago, I got involved in a debate with a parishioner in my last parish. And he said to me on one occasion, he said, we need more businessmen and women on the vestry. And I said, well, okay, I, I don't necessarily dispute that. I said, but would you mind telling me why? And he said, well, it's obvious. I said, well, it's not obvious to me, but tell me why. And he said, because the church is a business. 
And he said, if you want to be successful as a business, you've got to have good businessmen and women on the vestry in leadership roles. Well, my question to you this morning is, is the church a business? I don't deny the fact that we need to employ good business practices, but is the church really a business? Let me give you a definition of what a business is. Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary. A business is a commercial, mercantile, or industrial enterprise engaged in as a means of livelihood. Now that's how the dictionary defines a business. Now I'm asking you the question, is the church a business in this sense? Are we a commercial enterprise? You know, it's interesting, one Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who was the Archbishop during World War II, said, the church is the only institution that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. Now, you join an investment group, that investment group exists for who? The members. <laughs> you join a club, that club exists for the sake of what? Its members. He said the church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. So we are, are we a business in this sense? No. Now that's not to say that we don't employ, as I said, good business practice. But it does mean that the church is not a business in the proper sense. So what is the church? Well, this is the Westminster Dictionary of Christian Theology. The word itself is derived immediately from the Greek, kyriake, belonging to the Lord, and the word ekklesia, meaning assembly. In its primary sense, therefore, the church is the worshiping assembly or congregation called forth by God. That's what the church is. The church is not bricks, mortar, stone. It's not some sort of money-making endeavor. The church is, as Paul says, the body of Christ. That's what the church is. And that means when it comes to leadership in the church, in the body of Christ, the called out ones, the assembly of God's people, we've got to have a different standard of leadership. Leaders in the church are going to look somewhat different than leaders in the military, and leaders in business, and leaders in many other realms. So what are the marks of a true Christian leader? Well, before I even begin, let me lay some groundwork here and tell you that the first thing that is necessary in order to be a Christian leader is you've got to be a Christian. <laughs> now, that may sound self-evident, but it is not necessarily. That is to say, you really have to be committed. I think this is right. Forbes magazine got this right. You've got to believe in your product. You've really got to believe the Christian gospel. You cannot trifle with the Christian gospel. You cannot be lukewarm about the Christian gospel. Jesus Christ is not just a Lord, he is the Lord, the Lord of your life. And I lay that foundation because there are going to be a number of things up here that you're going to notice are not on the list. For example, you're going to notice on my list of the qualifications for a Christian leader, there's no mention of Bible study. Now, anybody that knows me knows that I believe that that is of the utmost importance. But that is of the utmost importance for anybody who is a Christian. 
not just for a leader. You can't be a Christian if you're not serious about the Word of God because it's through God's Word primarily that He speaks to us. And if you want to hear God speak, people sometimes say to me, I just don't hear God speak to me. Well, then open His Word. He does. So with that laid down as a foundation for where we go from here, let me suggest to you some qualifications for Christian leadership. For those who are already believers but seek to be leaders within the Christian community. What are those qualifications? I have to go through these quickly. I'm, I'm running out of time. The first one is vision. If you're going to be a Christian leader, you have to be visionary. The book of Proverbs said that without a vision, the people perish. What does it mean to be a visionary leader? Well, vision is a combination of what we would call insight and foresight. A visionary person is someone who can see the end from the beginning. They can see something that is a possibility. Other people may not be able to see it, but they see it as a possibility. And what's more, they not only see it as a possibility, they recognize what it will take in order to make it a reality. When I think of visionary people, the one that immediately springs to my mind, perhaps more than anybody else in the 20th century, was Walt Disney. Walt Disney was a visionary leader. He could see possibilities where no one else could see them. Anybody who's been down to Central Florida in the last few years, you have to admire what Walt Disney did. He took swampland that everybody else thought was absolutely worthless, and he turned it into this place that is a mecca for people from all over the world to come and be entertained. A magic kingdom. And Walt Disney has grown into this massive entertainment business. They own everything from Cinderella to the Avengers. It is enormous. That is visionary leadership. But while vision in this sense is important for a Christian leader, Christian vision is a little bit different. A Christian leader has vision, but their vision is compounded by the fact that they look at the world and recognize that the world is not what it should be. That the world that God made good and pronounced a benediction on after each successive act of creation is a world that has been marred and broken. It has become fallen as a result of human sin and wickedness. And the Christian leader recognizes the world as it is, but he recognizes and has a vision for what the world can be by the power of the gospel. That's what a Christian leader is. A Christian leader has a deep dissatisfaction with the status quo and a clear grasp of what the world should and can be. And you see this through the great leaders of the Bible. Jesus was a perfect example of this. When Jesus came into the world, he was deeply grieved by what he saw. People who were harassed and helpless. And that's why wherever Jesus went, he had a vision for restoration. You'll notice that wherever he went, lepers were cleansed. The lame leaped for joy. The mute spoke. The deaf heard. The dead were raised. Jesus saw the world for what it is. Why did he weep at the tomb of Lazarus? Because he knew this was not the way it was supposed to be, and he had a vision for what it was to become. That's leadership. Moses was a visionary leader. He saw the bondage and the slavery of his people and had a vision for their independence and their emancipation. Paul was a visionary leader. 
Paul was raised in a Jewish culture. He believed that Jews and Gentiles never mixed. Gentiles were what? Uncircumcised dogs. But after his conversion, Paul had a vision for a world in which the dividing walls of hostility were torn down. Martin Luther King Jr., angered by segregation in the nation, had a dream, a vision of a different world in which people of every race, language, and nation, what you're going to hear about in the sermon today, live together in harmony and peace. Now that is visionary leadership. And let me tell you something that is absolutely essential if you're going to be a Christian leader. You've got to have vision. George Bernard Shaw once said, you see things as they are and you ask why. But I see things that never were and ask, why not? That's leadership. Second mark of a Christian leader is hard work. It's been said that the world needs dreamers and the world needs doers. Well, I would agree, but let me tell you something. What the world needs more than anything else is dreamers who do. That's what the world needs. I don't know if you're aware of it, but you and I were created for work. Did you know that? When Adam and Eve were created, they were placed in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. Everything was provided for them. But the scripture says they were placed in the garden to work it. There's no retirement in the Christian life. We're supposed to die with our sandals, our boots, our shoes, and our cassocks on. This is what Thomas Edison once said. He said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. The Christian leader is willing to roll up his sleeves and get in and do the work. This is one of the reasons why I always tell the clergy, they say, well, this, you know, if, if, if clergy come to me and ever say, well, that's not in my job, let me tell you something. The clergy are the last of the general practitioners. And that should be true of every Christian leader. We roll up our sleeves and we get into it. Isn't that the message of the incarnation? Isn't that what God did? He didn't remain up there in heaven, aloof, transcendent, removed. He did what? He came down. He came down into the muck of human life and existence. He rolled up his sleeves and he engaged in the work. Vision, hard work, marks of a true Christian leader. Perseverance. It is not how you start. It is how you finish that matters in the Christian life. History is replete with examples of people who started off very well in their lives, but finished poorly. On the other hand, history is replete with examples of people who may have started off poorly, but because they finished well, are numbered among the greats. And that means that Christian leaders persevere. I think about Eric Little the famous Scottish runner. They called him the Flying Scotsman at a, rope, at a race near Stoke-on-Trent in 1922, qualifying for the Olympics. The gun went off, and another runner in an aggressive act stepped right in front of Eric Little and tripped him up. And he took a hard fall on the infield. By the time he came to his senses and was back on his feet, the other runners were several meters down the track. A great groan went up from the entire crowd. Everybody thought that this wonderful Athletic career was at an end, but Eric Little got back on that track and he took off. And they said it was like watching one of the, the Greek gods or the Roman gods with wings upon his feet. He, he just took off. And before long he had caught up with the pack 
And by the end of that race, he had managed to catch up with the lead runner, and he broke through the ticker tape and collapsed on the track, hyperventilating. A coach that was there saw it, and he ran up to Mr. Little, and he said, well, Mr. Little, that was certainly not the prettiest 800 that I've ever seen, but it certainly was the bravest. I think about Charles Simeon. You may not be familiar with Charles Simeon, but he was a great preacher in the 19th century in England. He had more of an impact upon the clergy and the nation of England than anybody else after the Wesleys. When he was appointed to be vicar of Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge, the congregation didn't want him. They wanted their former assistant, but the bishop said, no, this is the man you're going to get. You know what they did? The wardens locked him out of the church. <laughs> Harry, let that be a lesson to you, what you're about to hear here. They literally locked the rector out of his church. Finally, the law came in and forced him to open the church, so they locked the pews. And when he brought in benches, they threw the benches out into the churchyard for 10 years. For 10 years, he preached the gospel in season and out of season, and he prayed for those who persecuted him. And in the end, he won them over and eventually became the rector of the greatest church in all of England. That's perseverance, folks. William Wilberforce. I'm sure you're familiar with that name if you've seen the movie Amazing Grace. He was the man who almost single-handedly eradicated the slave trade in the British Empire. He submitted his first bill to the House of Commons for the abolition of slave, slavery in the British Empire in 1787. And every year, every opportunity he got, he lobbied for the destruction of slavery in the British Empire. From 1787 to 1833, 45 years, he hammered on the theme. And in 1833, they abolished slavery in the British Empire, and three weeks later, he died. Now, that's perseverance. That's what Paul said to Timothy, persevere, persevere to the end. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Perseverance is absolutely essential. This is what John Stott once said. He said, perseverance, mind you, is not a synonym for pigheadedness. The true leader is not impervious to criticism, but listens to it and modifies his program accordingly. But he does not waver in his basic conviction of what God has called him to do. Whatever the opposition aroused or the sacrifice entailed, he perseveres. For Jesus said, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Perseverance is a mark of a true Christian leader. Servanthood. On the night of the Last Supper, the night in which he was betrayed and arrested and dragged before the Jewish and Roman authorities, we're told that Jesus got down on his hands and his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And in so doing, he said, I'm setting you an example. He who would be greatest among you must be the servant of all. What does servant leadership look like? It contains four things in particular. We recognize that authority attaches itself to all leaders. And authority is not necessarily a bad thing. You can't have leaders without some level of authority. But Christian authority is not an intrinsic authority. It is a derived authority. It is an authority not of power, but of love. It's an authority not of force, but of example. 
It's an authority not of coercion, but of persuasion. Servant leadership entails three things. Encouragement, that is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. A shared responsibility. Jesus shared his ministry with his disciples, and a leader shares his ministry with those around him. And accountability. You recognize that you are not an island unto yourself. When I think about servant leadership, I can't help but think in more recent times of Dwight David Eisenhower. I think by all accounts, the greatest leader in World War II. And I remember what Dwight Eisenhower once said about leadership. Somebody said, how do you deal with people like Montgomery and Patton? And he pulled a string out of his pocket and he stretched it out on the table. You probably have heard me use this illustration before. And he took the back end of that string and he pushed it with his finger and it bunched up on the table. Then he stretched it back out again and he put his finger at the front of it and pulled it around the table and it went wherever his finger went. He said, that's true leadership. He said, a leader leads. He does not lead from behind and push. Did you ever notice that Jesus called a sheep, not cattle? You drive cattle, you lead sheep. That's what true leadership is. It's a servant leadership. Here's another element of Christian leadership. Discipline. Discipline. Now, when we think of discipline, what we oftentimes think of is mastery over our passions, our time, and our energy. Self-discipline. And certainly that is important in our lives. If we're going to be successful in anything, really, you've got to have a level of discipline, self-discipline. But when I'm talking about discipline, what I'm really talking about is the discipline not to act or react before you first seek God's will and wisdom. You know, oftentimes when we're faced with a crisis, the first thing we do, if you're a person of action, is you just act. Other people who are not leaders find that it's difficult to do anything at all. They're they're just terrified. They're, they're, They're frozen as a consequence of fear. But a true Christian leader doesn't simply act without thinking, ready, fire, aim. But on the other hand, neither are they petrified so much so that they are incapable of acting. What they do is they pause for a moment and they seek the Lord's will. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament with King Hezekiah. The Assyrians had surrounded the nation and King Hezekiah was presented with a demand for surrender. And everybody was looking to the king. The king's got to make a decision. What are we going to do? Your majesty, tell us, how are you going to get us out of this situation? And we're told in 2 Kings that what Hezekiah did was he went up to the temple and he laid the demand for surrender before the Lord. That's true leadership, you see. It's a desire to be in step with God the Holy Spirit, not running ahead of him, not lagging behind him, but in perfect step with the Holy Spirit. Another element of Christian self-discipline is this. It is a refusal to allow the urgent to replace the important. You know the problem for Martha and the story of Martha and Mary. You know, Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet. Martha was making the meal, and she became so frustrated because her sister wasn't helping her that she interrupted Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, Martha, Martha, you are concerned with many things, but Mary has chosen the better way, and it will not be taken from her. It's interesting, Jesus didn't say, Martha, you've chosen a bad way. 
and Mary's chosen a good way. What he said is, Mary has chosen the better way. That is to say, spiritual concerns are more important than physical concerns. Do not worry about those who can what? Hurt the body but cannot hurt the soul, but rather be concerned with the one who can destroy your soul. You know, so often in life, it's the tyranny of the urgent that distracts us from the things that in an eternal sense really matter. This is why I've said, I have been with many people when they're dying, and I've heard many people utter their last words, but I can tell you, never once in all the years that I've been a priest, 25 years, have I ever heard anybody say, gosh, my regret is that I wish I'd gone to the office one more time. I've heard people say, I wish I'd spent more time with my children. I wish I'd been reconciled to my sister. I wish I had done better by my wife. And I've heard many people say, I wish I had done better in terms of my relationship with the Lord. Christian leader does not allow the urgent to replace the important. You know, somebody once said to me, well, you know, Jesus was always available. You know, that's not true. During the course of his ministry, we're told that on more than one occasion, Jesus dismissed the crowds. He sent them away. He went up on the mountainside to pray. Because as important as the people were, what was more important still was his relationship with God. Let me tell you something. In the Christian life, you're going to become weary. It is difficult, folks. Jesus never said, come unto me and everything's going to be wonderful. He said, take up your cross and follow me. So, the true Christian leader is one who waits upon the Lord. Isaiah says, he gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's the Christian leader. hopefulness. Listen, folks, the world is a grim place. And the Christian is a realist about it. We're told that Jesus entrusted himself to no man. Why? Because he knew what was in the hearts of men. We need to be realistic about the world in which we live. This is not Pollyanna. You, you cannot pull a Scarlet O'Hara. You know what a Scarlet O'Hara is? I'll think about that tomorrow. You cannot think about it. The Christian leader understands that the world is a grim place, but the Christian leader also understands that pessimism, listen to me, if you're one of those people where the glass is always half empty, pessimism is a sin. Pessimism is a sin for the Christian. Why? Because we are people of the third day. We are a people of the resurrection. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week, then you recognize that all things are possible. That's why I go back to what I started with. You've really got to be a Christian. You've really got to believe these things. But a Christian leader is always, even in the midst of a grim culture, he is always hopeful. He is always hopeful because he knows that with God all things are are possible. One of the great hymns of the church is this, Lord of all hopefulness, Lord of all joy, whose trust ever childlike no cares can destroy. Be there at our waking and give us, we pray, your bliss in our hearts, Lord, at the break of the day. Well, that brings us to the final question here. I'm actually going to finish on time. 
You probably feel like you've been drinking out of a fire hydrant. Well, you have. Here's the question. How far can we go? How far can we go if we become Christian leaders? If we are visionary? We see the world for what it is, but we also have a vision for what the world can be. And we're willing to empower those who are gifted to help us make what is a possibility a reality. How far can we go? How far can we go if we're hardworking? We don't see any task as beneath us or too small, but we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get in and muck about and get the work done. How far can we go if we simply refuse to give up? As Churchill said, never, 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 never surrender. How far can we go? How far can we go if we see ourselves as servants of all and humble ourselves and are willing to wash each other's feet? How far can we go if we are disciplined not to come up with good ideas, but to see God's ideas? You know, they're not necessarily the same thing. What we may think is a good idea may not necessarily be God's idea. How far can we go if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? How far can we go if in a world devoid of hope we are a hopeful people, a joyful people who believe that with God all things are possible? I'm here to tell you there's no limit to how far we can go. Earl Hathaway, who was for many years the president of Firestone Corporation, used to have a little sign on his desk that said this, there is no limit to how far a man can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit. I'm here to tell you today, there is no limit to how far St. Philip's can go in the service of the gospel so long as God gets the credit. What we need are spiritual leaders. All the politics in the world will not change this world because the problem is not political. The problem is spiritual. And if you don't believe that, you've never understood the gospel. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he did what? Sent politicians? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if we are Christian people, then that is what we have to give to the world, what it desperately needs, and we need to be the kind of leaders who do it. God grant that he might raise up leaders in these perilous times. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of leadership. And we pray that in these days that seem, seems to be a dearth of leaders, everywhere we turn, we are like sheep without a shepherd, the blind leading the blind, everyone falling into the ditch. But raise up, Lord, 
Raise up people like Moses in the Old Testament. Raise up the Apostle Paul in our day. Raise up leaders that we may bring the light of the gospel to a darkened world. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.